Okay, hi, this is uh, Danielle Karapkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario in Canada. On behalf of webyeshiva.org, um, we are studying Morena Vuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. We are uh, in section three, and we are going to begin chapter 13 today. Um, chapter 13 is an extremely philosophical chapter. Now, what I mean by, now, of course, all of the Guide for the Perplexed is a work on Jewish philosophy, but what I mean is, is that by reading this chapter, you really feel that you're more in a philosophical milieu of the medieval age. Um, those of you who have studied um, medieval philosophical texts that have been written by theologians of the Middle Ages will see a certain similarity of where you start with a premise, let's say X, and X is challenged with a, um, uh, with a logical conflict, which is Y. And you have to try and come to a resolution or prove through logic that either X is true or Y is true. Um, and you go through a whole process using logical argumentation. This seems to be sort of like the, the ebb and flow of the chapter that we're going to be seeing today. It, it's, uh, it's an important chapter because it deals with a very, very big question, which is what is the ultimate purpose of existence? Um, why does anything exist? Now, that's a really big question, and uh, it's going to have some really serious ramifications for the Rambam. What I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to share the handout, uh, and as I say every week, if you're listening to this on audio, you can always download the handout um, either from webyeshiva.org in their course description of this particular chapter, or you can download it from the Facebook group, Shi'ur in Morenevuchim, and I certainly encourage all of the people who are studying Morenevuchim to join that Facebook group so that you can be regularly updated with when we are and are not having class. Um, so um, here's our preamble, and this is going to help us get our bearings. As we've mentioned before, the whole function of Section 3 of the guide is to discuss God's providence um, man's free will, uh, the fact that a human being lives in, in a free environment to choose equally between good and evil, and that therefore man has to bear the consequences of his free-willed choices. Um, this leads to us understanding that God is a providential God, that God reacts to man's decisions and either rewards or punishes man for his behavior throughout his life. This requires God to be knowledgeable, sentient, and aware of everything that is going on in our world. And it also requires the Rambam to deal with the very thorny question of why evil exists or how evil exists in our world. And that's what we've been dealing with with the last couple of chapters. Um, the, our previous chapter, chapter 12, was where the Rambam wanted to argue in a way to, to try and demonstrate that true evil uh, cannot be the direct result of God, because God is the antithesis of evil. God is absolute kindness and goodness, and therefore um, uh, e evil only exists mostly as a result of man's initiative. Um, and that was what his argumentation was uh, in the previous chapter. He also sought to minimize the existence of evil by pointing to the fact that the human being is, as a creation of God is only a small uh, percentage of the totality of creation. 
And when you look at the totality of creation, you, you pan out with your panoramic lens way out beyond the construct of the human being. You see a world that is majestic, that is beautiful, that is perfect, that is properly structured, and evil seems to sort of disappear within the microcosm of this human being. Um, and it really doesn't exist beyond the human experience, especially when you go into the celestial realm. So that's really why I have in, in the top of the handout, continuing the discussion of the existence of evil within the universe and the Rambam's effort to minimize such existence of evil, the Rambam appears to be continuing his line of argumentation that human beings are but a small component of, crea of creation. Thus, the evils that we find within man should not be construed as the totality of existence, but rather only a small part of it. Okay, so that's really where we're coming in. That's the mindset of the Rambam at this point. Now, um, with that in mind, the Rambam opens up this chapter with, with, with his own introduction, and that is, he says, philosophers, people who he says, if, we're, if you'd like to follow along in the Pines edition, which is what we've been using throughout our studies um, uh, from uh, Shlomo Pines, who did a, a very, very um, impressive translation from the Arabic into English uh, several decades ago. You can find in the, it's in the Pines edition on page 448, chapter 13. So he starts off with the preamble that often the minds of perfect men, really, he's really referring to philosophers. Philosophers often ask, what is the ultimate purpose of existence? As I will explain, says the Rambam, and by the way, don't get bogged down by the, um, the language that Pines used, what is the final end? In Hebrew, the, 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 the terminology that both Ibn Tibon and Rav Kafech use to describe this idea of purpose is tachlit. What is the tachlis, right? What is the real function or the real purpose of everything that exists? And he says, the Rambam, as I will explain, this question is eliminated. In other words, the whole premise of this chapter is that to ask why does something exist or what is its purpose only makes sense under certain conditions. As I will demonstrate, says the Rambam, those conditions do not exist when we talk about uh, the totality of, ex of existence writ large. Okay? And so sometimes a question is not an apt question if it doesn't fit with the construct that is in question. As this, and this is really what we're going to be discussing. So I know it's going to be a little bit um, disorienting when we get started, but I, I promise that if you stick with us throughout this chapter, it'll begin to make sense. Um, and the Rambam starts off and creates this dichotomy. There are two beliefs as far as how this world came to be. One is the belief of Aristotle and one is the belief of the Torah. Um, Aristotle believes in this idea of eternal existence and we had exhaustively discussed this when we studied the beginning portions of section two of the guide, uh, most particularly chapters 13 through 15, where the Rambam had presented Aristotle's depiction of an eternal existence that there was never such a thing as creation. Everything that it is, is, is now has always existed through the reproduction of everything that is existed going all the way back in time. So therefore, if you find trees in our world, if you find um, tigers in our world, and if you find human beings in our world, those things have always existed from time immemorial 
because Aristotle could not conceive of the idea of there being absolutely nothing and then something coming out of nothing that completely contradicted his whole conception of, of uh, the way he understood the deity, the way he understood the prime mover, um, which is completely unchanging. There can be no change within the course of this ultimate being who is in control of the entire universe. If there can be no change within that being, then there can be no change within the product of that being. And therefore, if we find things in our world today, they must have always existed in that way. So um, the question becomes of as to why or what is the ultimate purpose of everything that exists becomes a non sequitur whether you subscribe to Aristotle's depiction of an eternal universe or whether you subscribe in, uh, to the depiction of the Torah that at one point there was nothing but God and then at some moment in history God created everything. Um, in either qu case the question becomes nonsensical. So here are some philosophical premises that we're going to lay down and this is where it starts to get you know using logical argumentation premise A, premise B, premise C, and so forth. Whenever an agent acts to bring about change, it does so with a purpose. So if A is an agent and it is affecting B, it is either giving rise to B or it is causing B to change, A must have a reason or a purpose in mind, an objective as to why it is causing this change or this coming to B of B. Furthermore, the thing acted upon, let's call it B in our, in our illustration, is brought into existence or changed after not having existed or having been changed to its new state. Um, uh, so the thing act, so in other words, B is either created anew or it is changed as a result of A's agency, as a result of A affecting it. B does not change spontaneously, it must have an agent. That's really the, prem the second premise. So for example, uh, why did I open the refrigerator door? I did so, I am A, I am the agent of the refrigerator, and I changed the refrigerator status by opening the door. Why did I open the refrigerator door? To get food from inside the refrigerator. I opened the door because previously the door was in a closed state, and I could not access the food. I therefore changed the status of the B, the refrigerator, uh, by opening its door in order to in order to obtain my or to realize the purpose uh, for which I had opened the door. Next, uh, being this is fairly obvious, I hope you know, but we're just laying a foundation of logical premises. Um, premise number four or D. A being whose existence is absolutely necessary, that is to say God is the only necessary being, who cannot become non-existent does not have an agent to bring it to be or to change. That should also be fairly obvious. There is no agency to give rise to God. God has always existed. He is necessarily existent. Um, and therefore, no agent is responsible for God's existence. If a being has no agent who acts purposefully, it makes no sense to ask, what is its purpose? In other words, you can't say, what is God's purpose in existence? Because God has no agency that in, imbued him with purpose. So if something exists and it didn't have an agent that brought it into existence, you can't say that 
you can't ask what is its purpose in being. You can only ask what is something's purpose in being or what is its purpose in its change if there was an agent that caused it to be or caused it to change. So if there is no uh, door that has been opened in my refrigerator, then I can't ask the question, why is the refrigerator door closed if there was no agency that caused it to be closed? I can only ask, why is the door open if the, if the refrigerator door changed from its closed state to its open state? Similarly, if something exists, I can only ask, why does it exist or what is its purpose in existence if something caused it to exist? But if nothing caused God to exist, then you can't say, what is God's purpose in existence? It becomes a nonsensical question. That's the argument. Now, thus, what cannot, one cannot ask, what is God's purpose, since God's existence is absolutely necessary? And thus, what a premise that stems from that is, one can only ask, what is X's purpose, when X was brought into being by an intelligent agent who acted with purpose? But for something that has eternally existed, it makes no sense to ask this question. Now, therefore, if you subscribe to Aristotle, that all of creation has eternally existed, you cannot say, what is the purpose of Aristotle's universe? It simply has always existed. There has been no agent that has brought it into being, and therefore it makes no sense to ask, why does the universe exist according to Aristotle? Now, we believe not like Aristotle, we believe in creation, and as such, we will have a better opportunity to ask the question, why does everything exist? But it's going to get tricky, so you'll see. So we're only at the very beginning stage. Next, next point in, that the Rambam makes. Based on the above, one, one should not ask what is the purpose of existence, either according to our opinion that all existence was created, nor according to the opinion of Aristotle, that all existence has existed eternally. Now, we will discuss each side of this divide. It is easier to uh, approach this from the Aristotelian point of view of eternal existence, and so therefore the Rambam takes that on first. It's going to become more difficult to try and demonstrate that this question is not an apt question if you believe in creation, but we will get there shortly. So let's go and talk about this from the Aristotelian side. According to Aristotle, one cannot ask this question even for individual species. In other words, we've already pointed out that you cannot ask what is the purpose of the totality of existence because it, there was no agency for everything to exist and said, since it has eternally existed. But maybe you could ask the question, why do aardvarks exist? Okay, or such as asking, why do the heavens exist? Or why are the heavens of a certain dimension? or what is the purpose of aardvarks and so forth. According to Aristotle, every single species of existence has eternally existed. The heavens have always existed, aardvarks have always existed, and as such, none of the things that we find in the entire catalog of reality was brought into being with purpose. It simply exists as it exists without purpose and will never cease existing. Now, that should be, therefore, the end of the discussion. But the Rambam says, no, even according to Aristotle, it's not that simple because science is an endeavor that Aristotle was devoted to. 
and so many other philosophers are devoted to, trying to understand the nature of our physical universe. And you commonly find scientists asking the question, what is this thing's purpose? But the Rambam says there are two ways of, of in meaning when you say, what is this thing's purpose? Um, and, uh, and therefore the Rambam points out, when you find in a philosophical text, uh, even an Aristotelian text, what is the purpose of X in creation? That's a very different question from the question that we are discussing. To clarify, we need just to review that there, in classic Aristotelian philosophy, there are, the, Aristotle coined the idea of there being four causes, um, meaning that when you look at an object that exists in your world today, you can ask the question in four different ways, what is its cause? You can say, meaning, what is the, you can say, what is its material cause? Meaning, what matter went into making this thing exist? So therefore, if you look at a, a wooden table and you say, what is the material cause of this table? You would, the answer would be wood. That's the matter, the material that went into this table. You can also ask, what is its formal cause? Which means, what form contributed to its existence? Remember, because Aristotle divides the universe into matter and form. So the form that went into this table is the tableness or the image or the thought of, of, of a table went into this table in order to give it its specific form that it looks like a table. What is its efficient cause? In other words, who is the agent that brought this table into existence? And the answer would be it was the carpenter. The carpenter is the efficient cause of the existence of the table. And then you would say there's a fourth cause, which is the final cause. What is the table's purpose in existence? Why does the table exist? Why was it created? And the answer would be because we needed a place to have lunch on. We needed a place to be able to eat our lunch. And so therefore, if we were to ask the question, what is the final cause of the table? The answer would be to be able to eat, sit down and have a place to eat. But the question of final cause of any given species can be understood in one of two ways. In other words, if I find tables in the world of fire, or if I find in the natural world, things that are not man-made, but things that occur in nature, like aardvarks and the heavens, I can ask that question, why do aardvarks exist? in one of two ways. The, the way that scientists ask that question is not why do aardvarks exist? Because as we've just pointed out, that can't be asked because aardvarks have eternally existed without agency. But what I can ask is, in what way does this particular species contribute to the general ecosystem of existence? How is it necessary so that other things might exist properly? So if I were to ask you a question, why does a certain type of insect exist? You can say, well, that certain in insect contributes to the ecosystem because a certain kind of bird eats that certain kind of insect. And if that insect did not exist, those birds would not exist. And if those birds did not exist, so then other organisms would not be able to function properly. Or let's say a certain kind of insect is responsible for pollination of plants. So in other words, a scientist can ask, what is the purpose of this organism in the context of the larger ecosystem of nature? But he cannot ask, 
why does it exist in the way that we're asking it? Because as we've said, nothing has agency if it's if it's existed eternally. The larger question of our chapter is why does anything exist? And that is not something that science can answer since everything in its current state has always existed. And the Rambam realizes that this is a very, very thorny issue. It's a very difficult issue to get your head around. And the fact that there seems to be such order, another way of saying purpose in nature, where everything that exists seems to fit into an ecosystem has led philosophers to believe in what the modern term is a teleology, an intelligence that guides and sort of make sure that our, the ecosystem of all of nature is functioning properly. That if you didn't have certain organisms that function in this particular way, the entire ecosystem could be adversely affected. So we understand that. We understand and we, we, we recognize that there's a food chain. We recognize that there's an ecosystem that has to be very delicately balanced. And this is what causes philosophers to appreciate that there is an intelligent mover an intelligent designer who's responsible for making sure that everything is maintained. But it doesn't necessarily require Aristotle to say that everything was created. Everything could still have eternally existed in its way. It just needs a, an intelligent being to maintain that delicate balance. Notwithstanding Aristotle's belief, however, says the Rambam, the fact that we witness great purpose in existence and such a balance in the ecosystem is one of the reasons why a belief in creation is more logical than a belief in eternal existence. Since once you concede that the world was created, you can assign purpose to everything that exists. And I can say, oh, you know, it's, it's a little bit more difficult, I think the Rambam is pointing out to say that I can look at how aardvarks contribute to the ecosystem of our planet, but I cannot still ask the question, why do aardvarks exist writ large? Because everything that exists today has always existed, and therefore there was no agency to give it a purpose. But that's a little bit of a hair splitting that makes people uncomfortable, says the Rambam. And therefore, if we were to argue for creation and that everything was created out of nothing with purpose, with an objective in mind when it was created, so then it's much easier to see how there is this perfect balance in the universe, since not only is there a mover that guides things along once they exist, but there is a, a, a creator who brought everything into existence with this purpose of creating a perfect balance within nature. But let's go back to Aristotle. According to Aristotle, in all things or species that occur in nature, the efficient cause, the formal cause, and the final cause are all one and the same, which means to say um, that all of the different causes that we mentioned above, at least three out of the four, putting matter aside for just a minute, but the thing that gives rise to this uh, uh, particular aardvark or this particular organism all have the same uh, uh, cause, and to illustrate, let's just give let's just give an illustration. We have two men. One's man. One man's name is Zayed. The other man's name is Umar. Zayed is Umar's father. We would say that Zayed is Umar's formal cause, meaning that he is the agent that gave Umar form through his act of procreation. Zayed and his wife procreated, and Umar was born. How did Umar get his form of being uh, resemblant to his father and being a human being? 
He got it through Zayed giving form, just like a carpenter gives form to a table, Zayed gave form to his son. Zayed is also Umar's efficient cause, because just like a carpenter gives form, is both responsible for the efficient, is the efficient cause of the table, and it's the mind of the carpenter that places the form of a table into a table, so too Zayed's father is both the efficient cause and the formal cause, the agent that structures Umar the way he is through creation. But Zayed is also Umar's final cause, which means if we were to ask the question, why does Umar exist? Why does Umar exist at all? You can't say, well, Zayed chose to, uh, to procreate and give birth to Umar um, because he wanted to have a son because he wanted to have someone to take over his legacy or to work the farm and such and so, so forth and so on. No, according to Aristotle, independent of any person's uh, thinking process as to why he does anything in life, the fact of the matter is, is that human beings do not have purpose, according to Aristotle. If human beings have always existed, then human beings have no other purpose than to make sure that that which has eternally existed in its state continues to exist in that state. And therefore, if we were to say, what is Umar's final cause? We would say his purpose in existence is to assume human form and nothing else. Because since humans have eternally existed, they were not created with agency. They have no other purpose other than perpetuation, to continue to exist. Since humanity has always existed, you can only say that the purpose of individual beings continue to, continuing to exist is to A, perpetuate humanity, and this must be done through procreation since individual humans constantly die and so must be constantly recreated, and B, to do so in as perfect a way as possible. That is to be as perfect of a human as possible, because if human beings mutate themselves over the course of time and become less perfect humans, then they are not perpetuating a, a perpetual creation. And since all you can say about something that is eternally existed is that its purpose in existence is to perpetuate itself, to continue to eternally exist, therefore any individual human being only has one purpose, regardless of what I may think my purpose is. According to Aristotle, my real purpose is to make sure that I continue to perpetuate humanity and do so in as perfect of a way as possible. Now, this doesn't really speak to the ethics of humanity or the morality of humanity, but certainly when you boil down things to their final conclusions, to their most logical final conclusion, it certainly turns out that if you believe in eternal existence like Aristotle did, the whole function of, of being a human being is to be as perfect of a human as possible since you are therefore contributing to the entire nature of existence by perpetuating it in the way that it has always existed. Once we concede that the purpose of all material beings is continue to bring about the most perfect existence as possible, it could also be stated that all components of sublunary existence exist for the sake of man, who is the most perfect of all sublunary existent beings. In other words, the Rambam points out 
The next logical thing that one might conclude using this Aristotelian argument is that if the purpose of every existent being is to make sure that everything continues in its most perfect state, then one could argue that maybe aardvarks exist because they contribute to the most perfect species that exists, which is human beings. And therefore, one might argue that everything ex that does exist, d it continues to exist for the sake of the most excellent or supreme uh, material being, which is the human being. Still, Aristotle cannot be asked, what is man's ultimate purpose? Since the only purpose of any existent being is to perpetuate itself and its species and ultimately do so in as perfect a way as possible. If human beings continue to procreate and reproduce humans properly, they are said, according to Aristotle, to have fulfilled their purpose. And just to quote directly from the text, it is accordingly clear that, according to the doctrine of eternity, the question of ultimate finality for being as a whole does not even arise. You cannot say, why does everything exist? Everything exists is not even because it has eternally existed. There is no other question as what, if it, what is its purpose? Nothing can have purpose unless it previously had agency. God, you can't say what is God's purpose, just like you cannot say what is all of physical reality's purpose, what is the universe's purpose, since everything has always eternally existed. Now, that is the Aristotelian side of the coin, as, and as I said, that would be easier to address as to why this becomes an absurd question, what is the purpose of all of existence? But now let's ex examine this question from our point of view, that of creation of everything from absolute nothing. According to this uh, idea, which is what the Torah tells us that we are supposed to subscribe to, everything therefore has agency. Everything was brought into being by God, who we must uh, conclude had a purpose, had an objective in mind when he created everything that exists. So why can't we ask the question, why does everything exist uh, if we believe in creation? So one ought to be able to ask, what is the purpose of all of creation according to our belief that everything was brought into being with agency? So the Rambam says, accordingly, some Jewish thinkers believe that the answer to this question is that all of creation's purpose is for the sake of man so that man should worship and serve God. And the truth is, we have many traditional texts uh, that allude to this idea. This would be true of all existent beings, both those that are lower than man, such as the plants and animals, and those that are higher in order, such as the celestial bodies. They all exist to serve man and allow him to achieve his purpose in serving Hashem. Now, remember, as I said in the preamble to this chapter, the Rambam does not invest a lot of stock in the primacy of man as being the crowning uh, uh, element of all of creation. Remember, the Rambam said man is but a small segment of the totality of creation, and there are many beings that transcend the material world that are far superior to man. And so the Rambam is setting us up. He's setting us up to tell us that uh, this is not what we ought to believe. But he concedes that there are many great Jewish thinkers, even our Chazal, who seem to say that man is the crowning achievement and the ultimate objective for why anything exists, including the angels, including the celestial bodies, and including the entire order of nature that exists in our sublunary terrestrial realm. 
And there are, in fact, passages from Tanakh that support this thesis. As it says in Isaiah chapter 48, Lotohu bira'a, that God did not create this world for naught, but Lashevet Yitzara, God created this world for human habitation, for human habitation. So it seems that the prophet Isaiah is saying that man was the whole purpose of God creating anything. And as it says in the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 33, Hashem, so says God, Imlo were it not for my covenant that continues both day and night, I would not have put into, into motion all of heaven and earth. Now, what does that imply? It implies that for, were it not for the sake of man observing my Torah and doing the mitzvot and serving God, there would have been no purpose in all of heaven and earth existing. So does that not imply, and this is how the Gemara seems to interpret it in Masechet Shabbat and in other places, does that not imply that the whole purpose of existence is for the sake of man? Okay, makes me feel very good. I hope it makes you feel good as well. Isaiah chapter 40, that God stretched out the heavens and structured all of the natural existence of our world as a tent for the sake of human habitation, just like in Isaiah uh, uh, 45. So that, the Rambam says, is what many of our theologians believe. However, there is a basic flaw in this argument, which is discovered by posing the following question, and that is as follows. If everything exists for man's sake, could man exist if certain things in creation did not exist? Or did everything need to exist in order for man to be brought into being? Can I honestly say that every single component of creation is absolutely necessary for, in order for man to exist? That is to say, if, if there are leopards in the Amazon forest, must I submit that those leopards must exist in order for human beings to exist? Or is it possible that human beings in theory could exist and fulfill their purpose even if there were no leopards in the Amazon. If one suggests that it would be possible for man to exist without certain existent things, such as, for example, man could perfectly well fulfill his purpose without the existence of the heavens, then we would have to ask the question, why did God create the heavens if they are not necessary for man's existence? In other words, this is a very difficult theological position to take. If you're saying that everything exists for the sake of man, then you are obligated to identify the purpose of every existent thing, both in heaven and earth, and demonstrate how it is necessary in order to fulfill man's purpose. Not so easily done, says the Rambam. Now, if you're going to answer the opposite, that every single component of creation is necessary for man's existence, then we would still have to ask the question, if God created man in order to fulfill the Torah, in order to worship him through the Torah, and that is the purpose of all creation, what is the purpose of that worship? In other words, and this is really where we get to the very, very core of everything that we believe in Judaism. Yes, we believe God gave us the Torah, but to what end? Why is it important for God that man observes the Torah? Why is it important for God to man to, for man to do the mitzvot, for man to worship God? What does God get out of man's service? What does God get out of man's 
observance of the Torah. This, is it for God? And he says, the Ramah says, of course, you and I know that that cannot be. Since God is not deficient without worship, nor does he gain anything through worship, since by definition, God is completely self-contained in his perfection. So there is obviously, right? Uh, and of course, the Rambam doesn't even need to supply verses and dicta from our traditional literature, because that is so self-evident from everything that the Rambam has taught us up until this point in the guide about God's perfect, perfect essence. And so therefore, even though he could have cited a number of different texts, both in Tanakh and in rabbinic literature to point out that God benefits not at all from man's observance of the Torah, but it's self-evident. Well, perhaps you will answer, man's purpose is to worship God, not for God's sake, but for man's sake, since the only way for man to achieve perfection is through worshiping God. And man, uh, sorry, God wants man to be perfect. And that's why God gave us the Torah. But we are still left with the question, granted the universe exists for man's perfection, but what is the purpose of man becoming perfect? Why did God create man in an imperfect state and ask of man to become perfect? What is the benefit of God creating a being who goes through a life filled with Torah observance in order to become perfect? Why does God want man to become perfect? And that in itself, in other words, it's always that, you know, you can always continue asking why, 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 why? And we're getting to the most ultimate why, which is why does God want man to become perfect? If it's not for God, then who is it for? For man? Well, why does, want, why does God want man to exist at all? Why does God seek the, the existence of perfect man? There really is no way to answer that question other than saying God so desired it to be this way or God's wisdom deemed it to be so. Because ultimately, when we are pushed against the wall and we get back to this ultimate why, right? After answering a series of questions that a child might ask, why is the sky blue? Well, sky blue, but why is that? 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 We get to the ultimate why. Why does God want human beings to exist in a perfect state? To what end? To what purpose? And you can only answer that by saying, says the Rambam, because God wanted it to be so. Now, you don't have to be a Maimonidean uh, intellectual, rational thinker in order to conclude that. Even if you're a Kabbalist, the Ramchal in his introduction to Mesilat Yisharim, for example, uh, has to submit that as well. God wanted there to be goodness and perfection in the world. Why? Well, because God willed it so. It was, that's all you can say. There is no other way of explaining the ultimate answer to the why question. This is in effect precisely what the sages say in the following Ne'ilah prayer. And as we'll say on Yom Kippur, God, you separated man and made him your crowning creation. And you acknowledge that he should stand before you. But, then we say, Ki mi yomar matifal. Who can say to you what you create? And if he is correct, what can he give you? In other words, the Rambam is suggesting that this text basically says, we have no answer to the why. We don't even know why you created us. I don't know why I exist. Even if you tell me that my purpose in existence is to observe the Torah, but to what end? So that I can become a better human being? Why do you need me to become a better human being? 
Why? Why do I exist? And the answer is, it's God's will. They thus have explicitly stated that there does not exist a final purpose except the divine will alone. That even if you're a very, very committed Jew theologically and you want to try and understand the workings of the world, that is what you are going to conclude. We are thus left with a great dilemma. If man's existence has no understandable purpose, and if everything that exists was created for the purpose of man, then if everything else was created for created was not necessary for man's existence, or if everything else could have been created differently and man could still have existed, then all other existent beings doubly seem to have no purpose at all. Because A, being created for the purpose of serving something else which has no purpose, means that you have no purpose either. So even if you're going to say, you'll figure out a way of saying that even the leopards in the Amazon must exist in order for man to exist, but the if man has, we have no identifiable purpose as to why man exists, then we can't say that the leopards have a, have a purpose either. And if you say that man could have existed without the leopards in the Amazon, then that only amplifies the question as to then why do, why do leopards at all exist? Or why does anything exist outside of man? So we have only compounded our grief by submitting to a belief in creation. You thought it would be easy to make this question go away, according to Aristotle, but we are still stuck. Even if we're going to say that, yes, there is agency because everything was created and everything was therefore created with a purpose, but we're stuck now. At least with Aristotle, the question never starts. But according to us, we have a question, but we have no way of answering it. So based on these questions, we must conclude that the correct view of the Torah is in accord with the correct view arrived at through speculation. In other words, let's use our, our heads, let's use our rational faculties and come to the correct conclusion, which we must conclude is the correct view according to the Torah as well. And that is all beings do not exist for the sake of man, since there are so many components of creation that prima facie do not seem necessary for man's existence. And this is really the punchline of this chapter and how it connects uh, very elegantly with the previous chapter. The Rambam's whole point of this chapter is to demonstrate that despite the fact that we see evil existing within the human condition, but look at the totality of creation. Look at the rest of the world. Look at the leopards in the Amazon. Look at the heavens. Look at the celestial bodies. Look at all of nature. And you'll discover that that evil does not exist in other corners of the universe, which are the greater preponderance of all of existence. Man is only a small component. And you cannot say that the whole purpose of all of existence is for the sake of man. To the contrary, beings exist for their own sake and not for the sake of something else as a general rule. Now, even according to our belief in creation, the question of what is the purpose of all created beings thus collapses. Because now that we have submitted that the only answer that you can give as to what is the purpose of all things that exist is God's will, then that's, again, you're collapsing the question. You have no way of answering the question of why do things exist. We can only say that in virtue of his will, he brought into existence all the parts of the world, some of which were intended for their own sakes, while others were intended for the sake of other things who have purpose. Just as he willed for humanity to exist, he also willed that the spheres and their stars should exist, as well as the angels. 
whenever the existence of something required a prerequisite existence, such as the human faculty of reason required required sensory perception in order for the human mind to be minds to be capable of reason, God first created the prerequisite and then the ultimate objective. And we're almost done for today's chap portion of the chapter. We're going to have to divide this chapter into two parts. And therefore, the Rambam says, this view also finds support in Tanakh, that every component of creation was created for its own sake. As it says in Proverbs, kol po'al Hashem lema'anehu, means that Hashem created each existing thing for its own purpose. He translates the word lema'anehu for its own sake. It was created. Now, you could read the word lema'anehu would be referring to for God's sake, that God created everything for his sake. But basically, it's the same idea. Everything that exists is either for its own sake or for God's sake, meaning for God's will. This is also in accord with the verse in Isaiah. Anything that is everything that exists is called by my name. I created it for my glory. I formed it and I made it. Now, this means that everything that I have made, I made solely because of my will. And the reason for the multitude of verbs in this verse Birativ, yitzartiv, asitiv, is to allude the, to, to the idea that some things that were not necessary for their own sake were created for the sake of other things which were necessary according to God's will. Thus, he first created matter, for example, in order to give rise to necessary beings who possess materiality. That's a technical point just to explain the, ver the verbiage in that verse. But the bottom line is, is that whether you're an Aristotelian or a believer in creation like we are according to the Torah, the question of what is the purpose of all of existence ultimately collapses, and all we can say is that it was God's will. Now, with this in mind, we have now basically minimized the difficulty of the question by saying that everything that is created has its own purpose and was not created for the sake of man. This now removes the tremendous weight uh, that that many people place upon mankind as being the central core of all of creation, and therefore this diminishes the amount of evil that exists in the world because man, once again, has been diminished in the role that he plays in all of creation. Granted, he is the crowning achievement and the most important order of creation in the material world, but there are so many other things that exist that transcend the material realm, and all of the other organisms, the plants, the animals, etc., that exist in our material world, not all of them exist for the sake of man, and therefore man's role has been diminished. We are now going to see in the, la in the latter part of our, of our chapter, which we'll leave for next time, um, how the Rambam reads the verses of Genesis and talks about all of creation, how we can trace this idea to the creation narrative itself, and that's something we're going to leave for next time. And I hope I didn't lose you by being overly esoteric, but that's the point that the Rambam wants to make in this chapter. Have a great week. Any comments or questions before we call it a day? Uh, if not, we'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Thank you very much.